Well, you guys can turn to the book of Exodus chapter 3. We are kicking off a new sermon series this morning here at Grace Bible Church. We'll be studying the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy. So you can turn to Exodus 3. Uh, some of you were here this summer, and for a big chunk of the end of the summer, uh, Matt Morton was here preaching to you guys, and uh, he's the teaching pastor of our Creekside campus. Uh, many of you probably don't know, Matt Morton and I have been best friends for about 25 years now. We actually roomed together in college. We met each other the week before A&M began our freshman year. And then we, we roomed together most of the time. We've been accountability partners for most of that 25 years. We have a great deal we share in common. We were both mechanical engineering majors, class of 98. We both married Texas A&M girls. We both went to DTS. And we've both now been pastors here at Grace for the last 15 years. So a lot that we share in common. There is one very significant thing. Thing, though, that Matt and I do not share in common. It is our belief about how you are supposed to watch Marvel superhero movies. <laughs> I watched them all in order because that is the right way. So I watched all 22 films so that I would know what was going on and I would know who the characters were. And if I had missed one, I would not allow myself to watch the next one until I made it up because I didn't want to be confused. I didn't want to miss something. Matt watched the movies the wrong way. He watched Iron Man when it first came out in 2008. And then I kid you not, the next one he saw was Endgame with us. When we invited him, he missed all the ones in between. And so he walks into Endgame and and there's like 76 Avengers characters in that movie. And he knew one of them. That is the wrong way to do it. You're so confused when you drop into the middle of a story like that. And yet that is exactly what happens to so many people when they're told to open up to the book of Exodus and figure out what's going on. Because when you turn to the book of Exodus, you are being dropped into a story that had been going on for thousands of years. A story with a lot of really important characters and events and themes that you wouldn't know about if you had not yet studied the book of Genesis that comes before it. When I taught cover to cover last spring, the whole story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation in nine words. I don't know if you remember, but the first three words were all in Genesis. All of them came before Exodus. So roughly a third of the biblical story happens before you ever get to Exodus. So you might be wondering, well, why are we not starting with Genesis then? Why are you starting with Exodus? The reason is because Genesis is so important and so massive that we spent an entire year on it. So a few years ago, we went through Genesis for an entire year because it is so important and so huge. If you missed it, you can go back and listen to those sermons online. But as we dive into Exodus this morning, I know that some of you were here when we went through Genesis. So you know the story up to this point, but a lot of you weren't. A lot of you weren't, so you don't know what's going on when we turn to the book of Exodus. I don't want you to feel like Matt Morton as we study the book of Exodus through Deuteronomy this fall. So I want to fill you in on this story. I want to catch you up to what was going on up to this point in your Bible when we get to the book of Exodus. So let me catch you up for a little bit. Genesis through Deuteronomy, we call that the Pentateuch. 
It's a fancy word. means five, first five books of the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They were all written by the same dude, by Moses, about 3,500 years ago. This semester we'll be focusing on just Exodus through Deuteronomy, but they were all written about the same time. Now, if you read through all five of those books, you will discover a whole lot of people, a whole lot of events, a whole lot of nations, but you will get the unmistakable feeling that the whole story really centers on the relationship between one God named Yahweh and one nation called Israel. That's really what the whole story is about. The relationship between this one very special God and this one very special nation. So what should we know By this point in the story, when we get to the book of Exodus, what should we know about this one God named Yahweh and this one nation called Israel? So I want to fill you in on those those two things. What do we know just through the book of Genesis by the time we get to Exodus? So we will start with God, with Yahweh. Now that's a weird word. Um, You can't even pronounce that in English. What in the world is Yahweh? Well, that is actually the Hebrew name for God, but you won't see it in your English Bibles. It's translated for you with the capital, all caps, L-O-R-D. So when you see Lord and it's all caps, that's the Hebrew Yahweh. It's, it's an unusual word, an unusual name. It starts showing up in your Bible in Genesis chapter 2. Not in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 1, when God creates the entire universe, he is called Elohim. Elohim in Hebrew, it means the great God. So Genesis 1, it's the great God. But you get to Genesis 2, and God comes down, and he forms Adam and Eve with his own hands. And he breathes his own breath into them. And and in that chapter, in the midst of that intimate relationship between God and Adam and Eve, he is called Yahweh. That is his personal name. Okay, so Elohim is his title, the great God. Yahweh is his personal name. It's kind of like, if you call me pastor, that's more of a title. That's like calling God Elohim. But if you call me Blake Alexander Jennings, that is my unique name. That's Yahweh. That is his unique name. It is only true of him. So this God, this unique God named Yahweh, what does that name actually mean? Well, you got to look at Exodus chapter 3. Okay, we're in the middle of a story we're going to study next week. So Exodus 3, we're going to unpack next week. Right now, I just want to show you a little piece of it. God is going to call a man named Moses to go deliver the Israelites from slavery. And Moses is going to ask a very reasonable question. When the people ask me who sent me, what shall I say? What is your name, God? So look with me, Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. Pick it up in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am in English is Yahweh in Hebrew. So the Hebrew name Yahweh is simply the the Hebrew equative verb, I am. And it's kind of an odd thing to call yourself, I am. Pretty significant name, though. So our God isn't I was, and our God isn't 
I will be, our God is simply forever I am, the ever-existent one, the unchanging one. It's a really powerful name. I mean, we're talking some serious boldness to choose that name for yourself. I am is who I am. That is God's name, and, and it fits God really well when we look at what he does in the book of Genesis. So if you think back to Genesis in chapter 1, the very first time you see this God, of the Bible, what is he doing? He is creating the universe out of his speech. And it's it's really remarkable. When you look at Genesis chapter 1, God said, let there be light, and poof, there was light. God said, let the dry land appear, and it was so. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures, and it was so. You, You can't overstate how unique this idea of creation was in the ancient world. Pretty much every people group, Every nation in the ancient world had some story about how the world came about. And in pretty much all of those stories, it wasn't one God, it was lots of gods, and they were all limited, and typically they were fighting. And that was creation, a whole bunch of gods fighting, and usually the earth was the corpse of a vanquished God. But that's not what happened with Yahweh. But there's no other gods to fight. He simply speaks and creation comes about. And, and that's really the first thing to know about this incredible God named Yahweh. In the book of Genesis and really throughout the Pentateuch, Yahweh is absolutely sovereign and omnipotent. You cannot miss that from the very beginning of the story, from Genesis chapter 1. He is sovereign and omnipotent. Sovereign is a fancy word. It just means authority. This God, Yahweh, he has all authority in all the universe at all times. In other words, he is unchallenged by other gods. There are no other gods to get in his way. And again, that's really a very unique way to think about religion in the ancient world. And in most of the religions, there were lots of limited gods fighting. The best example you know of is Greek mythology. So you see Greek mythology on the, on the silver screen all the time. It's actually a very popular thing to make movies out of nowadays. So Wonder Woman and Aquaman, those are just versions of Greek gods. You had you know, Zeus and Poseidon and Athena or called Diana and Hades and all, all these different gods. And they were always fighting with each other because none of them had absolute power, or absolute sovereignty. They were in competition. And that's great for movies, but if you think for a moment, what would your life be like if that was actually reality? It would be wretched. You couldn't have security. You couldn't have peace because you don't know who's going to win. And some of those gods are horrific, like Hades, who just wants to burn you forever. So you think about these other gods and other ancient religions, and there's no security, there's no peace, there's no hope. Yahweh is utterly different. There is no other God to compete with him. He is unchallenged. He is absolutely sovereign. He has all power to accomplish everything that he wants. That's what omnipotent means, unlimited power, infinite power. He is infinite in every way. Nothing can challenge him. We know that Yahweh wins. That's the great thing about Christianity. It's not like Greek mythology. You don't know who's going to win. We do. Yahweh will win and no one will get in his way. Everything that he wants to accomplish will be accomplished. The amazing thing about Yahweh in Genesis chapter 1 is that when he's creating the universe, he doesn't need any raw materials. He creates it out of nothing. He speaks and it is. He speaks and all matter and energy come into existence. That is infinite power. 
So this amazing God with infinite power, he continues to use that infinite power and sovereignty throughout the book of Genesis. You see it over and over again. Nothing can stand in his way. So Genesis 6, humanity is united in incredible wickedness and violence. And so God floods the earth and wipes them out all but Noah. Later in the book, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, threatens Abraham's wife, Sarah, and God simply creates a plague in Pharaoh's house until he releases her. Later in the book, the the family, the chosen family, Abraham and Israel, they are threatened by a famine, and God orchestrates this amazingly elaborate plan through a guy named Joseph to deliver the entire family, and none of them starve, and God ends up delivering multiple nations from starvation. Anything that God wants, he can get. No one and nothing can stand in God's way. So that's the first thing to know about this God we encounter in the Pentateuch, this unique God called Yahweh. He's nothing like the gods that were pictured in all other ancient religions. He is absolutely sovereign and omnipotent. But here's the really crazy thing. This God who is sovereign and omnipotent, who stands transcendent above the universe, who created everything simply out of speech, The second thing to know about Yahweh in the Pentateuch is he is present with his people. This amazing, sovereign, omnipotent, transcendent God is present in the life of his people. And you see that again from the very beginning. Genesis 1, God stands high above, creates the universe out of speech. When the story is retold in Genesis 2, God comes down. Yahweh comes down and he forms Adam out of dirt and he breathes into him and he creates Eve and and he makes a home for them. God actually plants the Garden of Eden himself. And then we're told that in the cool of the day, God would walk and talk with Adam and Eve. This transcendent God of the universe would come walk with them. Why? And when you think about humans, like, we're not all that great. We're pretty finite. We're pretty limited. We don't live that long. We get sick. We die. We do dumb things. And yet the transcendent God of the universe who needs nothing from us chooses to be present in the life of his people. So you see that throughout the book. It's really amazing because I would kind of have expected a God who is that great to have better things to do than to hang out with us. And yet throughout the book of Genesis, you just keep seeing God show up. And the amazing thing is he loves to show up in the lives of the lowest of people, which is really cool. I mean, he'll show up in Abraham's life. Abraham's pretty great. But often he shows up in someone's life who the world wouldn't, wouldn't think about at all, wouldn't even notice. So I'll just give you a few examples. These are some of the most beautiful stories in the book of Genesis. I love Genesis 16. Um, Abraham makes a mistake. He impregnates Sarah's maid. Her name is Hagar. And it doesn't go well. Sarah chases Hagar away. She's pregnant. She flees into the desert. She is all alone. And Yahweh, this transcendent God, shows up in the life of this maid who is lowest of the low on the totem pole of ancient society. He shows up and says, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count and i love what hagar names him hagar actually get this is in hebrew it's one word it's a name you are the god who sees me the transcendent creator of the universe sees this servant alone in the desert it happens again a few years later hagar has a son and, and things bad, go badly again with sarah and abraham and and hagar and her son flee into the desert and they run out of water And they're going to die. And this little boy is crying out. He is crying to God. And in Genesis 21, Yahweh shows up again and says to Hagar, Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the boy. 
Now, how remarkable is that? We're talking about a little boy in the desert crying for water. No one else except Hagar can even hear him. And yet the transcendent God of the universe hears the cries of this little baby boy and comes down. And he speaks to Hagar and he rescues them. He provides a well of water for them. And then he takes care of them and protects them. And and her son grows into a mighty nation. It's an amazing story. You just keep seeing this transcendent Yahweh show up in the lives of people whom society would think nothing about. It happens later in the book with Joseph. We talked about him a moment ago. At one point in the story of Genesis, Joseph is in prison. He has been abandoned and forgotten by literally the entire world. No one cares about him. No one thinks about him. And yet God does. Genesis 39, Yahweh was with Joseph in prison and extended kindness to him. Someone that the world thought nothing but negative thoughts towards, the transcendent God of the universe shows up in his life. So you see that presence of Yahweh throughout the book of Genesis. You see it all the way through the book of Exodus as well. That theme carries through. And so right towards the beginning of the book of Exodus, chapter 2, we're told that he, Yahweh, heard their groaning. The Israelites, as they're enslaved in Egypt, as they're oppressed, he hears their groaning. He noticed them. Exodus chapter 3, I have seen the affliction of my people. I have heard their cry. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them. That that drives the whole story of the book of Exodus, the presence of God with his people. This great transcendent creator of the universe cares so much about lowly, limited human beings that he chooses to be present with us. Even on our bad days, even when the world cares nothing for us, even when we rebel and do really dumb, sinful things, Yahweh is still always present with us. So his presence, this beautiful presence of God is a major theme and a major thing to know about Yahweh. And again, it's stunning. This great sovereign, omnipotent God is always present in the life of his people. Third and final thing to know about this unique God, Yahweh, in the Pentateuch is Yahweh is faithful. He is always faithful to his promises. Go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 9. So let's go back a little bit into Genesis. We won't cover much of Genesis, just a couple little pieces. Genesis chapter 9. Yahweh's faithfulness to his promises is actually one of the dominant themes of this whole part of the Bible. I mean, I guess it's kind of a theme of the whole Bible, but particularly this section of the Bible. It's a major theme how faithful Yahweh is to his promises. So look with me. We're going to pick it up in chapter 9. We're going to see how Yahweh is faithful even when his people are unfaithful. So chapter 9, verse 11. This is right after the flood. So if you know anything about that story, Noah and his family are on an ark, and then, and then it settles on the ground, and eventually the water dries out, and they come out of the ark, and God speaks. He says in verse 11, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I will set my bow, or rainbow, in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. So what's happening here, there was incredible violence on the earth to such an extent that God said the only possible solution here is to take this one man, Noah, who's found favor in my sight, deliver him and wipe out the rest of humanity and start over. There's just unprecedented violence all the time, incredible wickedness. So God floods the earth. After the flood has subsided, God makes a promise called a covenant. 
a solemn promise. He says, I will never do that again. I will never flood the earth again. I will never wipe out humanity with a flood again. And then God says, I want you to know how serious I am about that promise. I want you to have confidence that I'm going to keep that promise. And so I'm going to create a new thing called a rainbow. I I don't know how God did it. I don't know the details of this. But somehow this is the beginning of rainbows. And you look up in the sky after rain and you see a rainbow. God designed that to be a reminder to you and me of how faithful he is. What God is saying is even if the world descends once again into the incredible violence of Genesis chapter 6, I will be faithful to my promise. I will never wipe out the earth again with a flood. So you see this idea of God making promises and keeping them throughout the book of Genesis. Next, let's turn to Genesis 22. Genesis chapter 22. God is going to speak to a man named Abraham here. We'll talk about him a little bit later this morning. But I I want to show you what God says to Abraham in this chapter and and unpack it for you because it's really, really amazing. Genesis chapter 22, we'll start in verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, Yahweh, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies and your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. God makes this promise to Abraham, land, seed, and blessing. It's a great promise. What I want you to notice is how that passage began. Verse 16, by myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh. It's really easy to miss this. and not. This is a first swearing in the Bible. First oath. God swears by myself or upon himself that he's going to fulfill this promise to Abraham. And you may be wondering, well, what does that mean? Well, when someone swears upon themselves, it means may my promise come true or I die or I be undone. So God is saying, Abraham, I want you to understand how absolutely settled this promise is, how absolutely secure it is. If it fails, I fail. If it passes away, I pass away. God of the universe, he is promising his own existence upon the fulfillment of this covenant promise. It's as unconditional as it could possibly be. God is saying, Abraham, it doesn't matter what you or your descendants do. It doesn't matter how unfaithful you are. This promise is absolute. I will fulfill it or may harm come to me. And and Abraham's descendants are going to do some awful stuff, if you know the story of the Old Testament. And yet God will never remove the covenant. He will discipline them, but he will never take back the covenant because he has sworn it upon himself. That is the ultimate act of faithfulness. And it blows my mind every time I think of it. Why would the transcendent creator of the entire universe swear harm upon himself to fulfill a promise made to a man? It's crazy. Why would he do that? Because he is so faithful. So this incredible faithful promise that Yahweh makes to Abraham, it passes down to Abraham's son. So turn a couple pages to the right, chapter 26. Genesis 26, Abraham has died. His son Isaac is speaking to God. And here's what God says in verse 3. So chapter 26, verse 3, God says, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. 
For to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath, the swearing, which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and give your descendants all these lands, and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So God takes this irrevocable covenant promise he made to Abraham and he passes it down to his son Isaac and then eventually to his son Jacob and then eventually to Jacob's 12 sons who become the nation of Israel. And that faithful promise made on oath to Abraham becomes the driving force of the book of Exodus. So next week, when we see the Israelites, the family of Abraham in slavery, what's going to motivate Yahweh to deliver them is faithfulness to this oath he made to Abraham. And so in Exodus chapter 2, again, we'll unpack more of this next week. Exodus 2, the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, their slavery, and they cried out. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered. His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Really significant phrase. He remembered the covenant. Well, it's not that God's forgetful like humans are. No, the point is God is saying he is always faithful to that covenant. He is always faithful to that promise. God keeps his word. And so as we walk through the book of the Pentateuch, these five books this fall, what you need to know about this unique, special God named Yahweh is that he is sovereign and omnipotent, standing above all space and time, and yet he is also intimately present with his people and faithful to his promises. That is your God in the Pentateuch. So the Pentateuch is a story of this unique God and his relationship with a particular people called Israel. So now let's talk about them for a little bit. The second part of this sermon. Let's, let's discover what do we know about this special people called Israel in the Pentateuch. Now the word Israel or Israelite appears 547 times. In Exodus through Deuteronomy, it's common. It's referring to a particular ethnic group. This is a family tree of Israel. So it starts with Abraham. He's a son named Isaac, son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. So in the book of Genesis, it's just a family. By the end of the book of Genesis, it's like 75 people. By the time you get to Exodus, it's a couple million because a lot of time has passed. So that's the nation of Israel. We typically these days call them Jews, but that word didn't exist yet. It will later in the Bible. But when you hear the word Jew, you think Israel. Those go together. So at this point in biblical history, they're simply called Israel or Israelites. Now, here's the deal. When I was a kid and I would read this part of the Bible, or really any of the Old Testament, I would always wonder to myself, um, why does God seem to care so much about this one race of people? It's one ethnic group. It's kind of weird, right? Like this whole part of the Old Testament, this whole Pentateuch is all about God and Israel, the Jews. Why, why does he care so much about this ethnic group and doesn't seem to care so much about other ethnic groups? When in Exodus, God shows up and miraculously delivers the Israelite ethnic group from slavery. You know, there were a whole lot of other ethnic groups in slavery at that same time in world history, and God didn't deliver them. Same time that the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, 5% of the population of China was slaves in the Shang Dynasty. God didn't deliver them. Why? And so as a kid, I would read it, and I would actually wonder to myself, is God racist? Like, does God like that race more than all other races? And the answer is no. Your God is not racist. But to understand what's going on, you've got to go back to Genesis 12. So turn to Genesis 12. 
We're going to read Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and I'm just going to tell you this is one of the five most important passages in the entire Bible. So you need to know Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Can't overstate how important this passage is. In Genesis chapter 12, God shows up, Yahweh shows up in the life of a man named Abraham, or here he's called Abram, his name hasn't been expanded yet, and God makes a promise, an amazing covenant promise. So look with me, chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, again, that's Yahweh, Yahweh said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, the part that I want you to focus on, the most important part of these three verses, and possibly one of the most important phrases in the entire Bible, is the last line of verse 3. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That is the key to understanding why so much of the Old Testament is about this one racial group called Israel. When God made this promise to Abraham, God's goal was to bless the whole world. That has always been God's goal. He wants to bless all nations, all people, all families. And so earlier in the book of Genesis, the first 11 chapters, God is blessing all humanity equally in a sense. All of the human race is united in one group. We have not been divided yet into different racial groups, different language groups, different nations. We are all one, and God is relating to all of us as one. The problem is, whenever humanity unites, they unite in rebellion. That's just what we do. Sinful humans, whenever we all unite together and work together, it's always in rebellion against God. So Genesis chapter 6, we are all together united in violence, united in wickedness. And so God floods the earth. Later, Tower of Babel, we once again all unite. And what idea comes to our mind? Well, now that all human beings are united together, let's build a really tall tower to heaven so we can kick God off the throne and take his place. That's what the Tower of Babel was about. And so the problem is that when all of humanity unites, we unite in rebellion against God. And so after the Tower of Babel, God says, okay, I want to bless you all, but the only way is to divide you up. So I'm going to divide you. I'm going to, I'm going to confuse your languages. So I'm going to divide you into different linguistic groups that will lead to different ethnic groups and different nations. I will divide you up. Then I will choose one of you through whom to save all of you. And that's the point. God chose Abraham not because he likes Jews better than the rest of us, but because he wanted the family of Abraham to become the conduit of blessing and salvation to the rest of the world. That was the point of the nation of Israel. They were to be God's channel of blessing to the rest of the world. And that is actually why we chose the name of this series, Kingdom of Priests. That is what Israel was called to be, a kingdom of priests to the rest of the world. Exodus 19.6, God is speaking to the nation of Israel. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does it mean to be a kingdom of priests? Well, what is a priest? A priest is a person who stands between God and the rest of humanity. That's the job of a priest. You stand between So so you mediate God's blessing 
to the rest of the human race. That's what a priest is called to do, to stand between God and people so that the rest of the world can be blessed by God. The priest is the channel of God's blessing, of God's grace, of God's salvation to the rest of the world. And so God chose this one family to grow into one nation that would become a kingdom of priests, a channel of his blessing to the rest of the world. So Israel's whole point of existence was to mediate the blessings and presence of God to the rest of humanity. God always loved all the world. He chose one nation to be his channel of blessing, his channel of salvation, his conduit of his presence on earth to the rest of the world. So Israel was chosen by God to share his presence and his blessing with the whole world. But when we first meet Israel in the book of Exodus, they don't look like they've got much of God's blessing upon them. They're in slavery. They feel far from God's land. They feel far from God's presence. And so the story of Exodus is how God is taking this kingdom of priests and moving them back to a position of blessing so that they can be a source of blessing to the world. You can't share what you don't have. So God had to bring his blessing into their life first so they could share it with the rest of the world. That's the story of Exodus through Deuteronomy. God is taking this special nation and blessing them and shaping them into a kingdom of priests, a channel of his blessing to bring salvation to the entire world. That was the point of Israel. Now that brings us to today because we're not Israel. We're not the nation of Israel. I would imagine most of us are not Jews in this room. And so what is the application of any of this to us? Well, this is where it really gets fascinating, where it really gets amazing. God's choice of Israel 3,500 years ago mirrors his choice of us today. We live in a different age than they did. We live in the New Testament age. And in the New Testament age, God's kingdom of priests is not Israel. It's us. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 2. This is spoken to you, to us, to this church. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God is one day going to get back to the nation of Israel, to, to shaping that nation into a kingdom of priests, but that's not what he's doing today. Today on earth, he's doing that with us. We are the kingdom of priests. We, the church, we are the holy nation, God's own possession on earth, called to be a channel of blessing and salvation to the rest of the world. So if you wonder, why am I here on earth? What is my reason for existence? This is it. You're here on earth to be a priest. To be a mediator between God and the rest of the world. To be a channel of God's blessing to everyone else. God has blessed you so that you can be a blessing to the world. That is your reason for existence. Paul unpacks that in 2 Corinthians 2. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved, among those who are perishing. We as a church and we as individual believers have been chosen by God to be an aroma to the world of Jesus. We are called to be a fragrance of grace to the rest of the world so that the rest of the world would take notice and say, I want some of that. That smells nice. Please, where'd you get it? 
We're to to live out the life of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus so clearly to this world that they are drawn to God. That's what priests do. Priests live such a beautiful, lovely life that it draws other people to God. That's what God wants of you. That's what you're called to do, to be a sweet fragrance of grace to the rest of the world, to draw the rest of the world to know and love our God, Yahweh. That was what Israel was called to do. That is what we are called to do. We have the same mission that they did. So if that's what we're called to do, we need to get practical for a moment. We need to talk about how do you actually do this. It's one thing to talk about being a priest. It's one thing to talk about being a Roma to the world. What do you actually do with that? Well, we've, we've made some handouts for you because I like handouts. So if you're on the end of a row, please look under your seat. End of a row. Look under your seat. You'll see a stack. Um, please grab one and pass it down. Take one and pass it down. So on, on the front of it, it says every neighbor, and it has this, it has the verse I read a moment ago, 1 Peter 2, 9. That's a really important verse to me, so put it there so that you can read that, you can remember that verse. We, we call this thing every neighbor because our explicit goal as a church is that we would reach every neighbor in this community with the grace of God. We, us, our community, we want to reach every person in this community with the good news of Jesus' salvation. That's our goal. So to help us do that, if you flip to the back, you will see a map tool that we have created for you. So the idea of this every neighbor map is that God and his sovereignty has placed you in a particular neighborhood dorm or apartment, a particular job, particular classes, particular things that you do in life so that you would rub shoulders with people who don't yet know Jesus who aren't yet following Jesus. And so what we want you to do, if you're going to be a priest, if you're going to be this sweet aroma of the the fragrance of Christ to the world, first thing you need to do is just be aware. Who are the people in your life that God has placed there so that you can share Jesus with them in your deeds and in your words? So that's the, the purpose of this tool. It's just a place to write names. So some of you have a pen. You can start writing names. Those of you who don't, there's pencils in the front of the, or the back of the seat in front of you. So just grab a pencil. I want you to fill this out. So we've kind of divided our lives into four different sectors, kind of makes it easy to think about. Um, this every neighbor map, the first block is live. So it's where you live geographically. So that might be your neighborhood. It might be your dorm or your apartment. What you're doing is writing the names of a few people in your neighborhood, dorm, and apartment who either don't yet know Jesus or aren't plugged into a church yet. And so people who don't know Jesus or they're not actively following Jesus yet, I want you to write their names. You can just put their initials if you feel more comfortable doing that, just their first name, whatever. You, if, you, if you don't know them yet, if you don't know their names, the Red House, whatever you want to do to know who it is, who it is. Okay, so write down three people where you live. Next is learn for those of you who are students. So you're writing down the names of classmates who you encounter. Again, if you don't know their name, just write something distinguishing about them. Next is where you work. Okay, so coworkers, your boss, those, your employees, those who you work with, your, your partners, whoever it might be, people who you work with who don't know Jesus or aren't following him. And then play, that's kind of a funny word. What we mean by that is like people you encounter um, through athletics, at the gym, through a hobby, or maybe through your kids' sports. Maybe you have kids in soccer and you're hanging out with some of their parents while the kids are playing. Write down, again, three names. 
So the first step to being this fragrance of Christ to the world is just to open our eyes and see who has God in his sovereignty placed in our lives who don't yet know him. How can I be the presence of Christ in their life? Okay, so write down those names. Really, like right now, write down their names. Just write them down. If you don't fill in all the blanks, that's okay. Pray that God will help you fill in the rest of the semester. So write down some names on your map. So you're writing down these names. Once you have names on this map, this map now needs to stay in your Bible that you look at regularly or on your kitchen refrigerator or someplace where you will see it frequently. The idea is that you see this frequently and it motivates you to pray. So you start praying for these people by name. And maybe you're going to take one block each day. Monday, you're going to pray for those who live by you. Tuesday, those who learn with you, your classmates. Wednesday, those you play with, you go to the gym with, whatever it is. Okay? So write down names. Put this somewhere prominent where you will be reminded to pray. And then I want to challenge you. So this is, this is the second thing. You're going, to, you're going to pray for all these people, but then you're also going to pray for yourself. And this is a big prayer. I want you to begin to pray for yourself that God will give you the opportunity the courage, and the faithfulness to share Jesus with one of these people this semester. Now, for some of you, you're like, I share Jesus every week, so that's no big deal. But for a lot of us, that's not the case. We're really scared about the idea of of openly sharing our faith in Jesus with somebody who doesn't know him. So I want you to begin to pray that God will give you the opportunity, the boldness, and the faithfulness to share Jesus with one person on this list this semester. Now, to share Jesus with them, obviously, you can't share what you don't have yet. So make sure you have Jesus. So what does it look like to have Jesus? We talk about it frequently. It's really good news, and it's really simple news. Jesus is the Son of God. He came to earth to live the perfect life we couldn't. And then he died for us on the cross and rose from the dead to conquer sin and Satan and death once and for all. And now Jesus offers to all of us eternal life as a free gift, and all we have to do is say yes. That's the good news of Jesus. All you have to do is say, yes, Jesus, I want that. Yes, Jesus, I believe. You died for me and you rose from the dead so I could have salvation. I could have forgiveness. I could have eternal life as a free gift. So if you're here this morning and you felt like coming to church this morning would make you better in God's eyes or maybe get you a little closer to heaven, that's not how this works. Heaven is a free gift. You didn't have to come to church for it. I'm glad you're at church. Great. But that's not what that's about. All you have to do for heaven is just say to God, yes, I want that. And I believe Jesus earned it for me. Okay, so for those of you who have said to Jesus, yes, I want that. I believe you did that for me. I want you to pray that God will give you what? The opportunity, the boldness, and the faithfulness to share that good news with one person on your list this semester. Let's go before the Lord, and we're going to spend a moment in prayer. I'm going to give you just a moment of silence during the prayer so that you can pray for some of the names on your list. So just look at your list and pray that God would reach them with the good news of Jesus. Heavenly Father, Yahweh, we praise you that you are a God unlike any other conception of God. You, you, you are a God who is omnipotent and sovereign. You are transcendent. You created the universe out of speech. You stand above all things unchallenged and unlimited. You are awesome, and yet you are also with us, and we are amazed at that. 
that you, the transcendent creator, who so clearly has better things to do than to hang out with us, you have chosen to be constantly present in our lives. On good days, on bad days, on faithful days, and on unfaithful days. When we don't obey you, when we sin and we rebel, still you are present with us. You are present and you are faithful to your promises. You are always faithful, even when we are not. We praise you for who you are. That is such great news, God, that you are Yahweh and that you have chosen us to be your people, to know you, to have eternal life as a free gift so that we can be a kingdom of priests to the world. We can be the aroma of Christ to those who don't yet know him. We praise you for that opportunity and we pray that you would use us to reach our neighbors and our friends. And right now, Lord, we want to lift their names to you and ask that you would reach them with the good news of Jesus this semester. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give each of us opportunity, boldness, and faithfulness to share the good news of Jesus with one person on our list this semester. I pray give us faithfulness to to, to take advantage of the open doors that you give us. We pray that you would use us to draw many of these people on our list into your kingdom this semester. Thank you so much that you're a God who loves us and loves the world and wants to use us to bless them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you guys will hear a lot more about every neighbor the rest of the fall. If you didn't get one of these cards, there are extras under the portico. And remember the announcement from the beginning, if you're not yet connected at Grace or you want to know how to serve at Grace, go to Starting Point right now in the Fellowship Hall. It's only 20 minutes. We will walk you through how to get connected and how to find a place of service at the church. If you have kids, you can bring them. So head to Starting Point right now. See you guys next week.